I'm Alina Utrada, and this is The Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. Hi, everybody. I'm Alina Utrada, and I'm here today with Anjali Kata, who is one of my classmates at Stanford University. And we're going to be talking about the Biden administration and big tech. So hi, Anjali. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, so it's so funny because the first podcast we did was literally the day that the race was called for Joe Biden. And I think that we were really excited about the potential that the Biden campaign might actually um, bring some of these big tech corporations um, at, at least be a little bit more critical of them than, than we had seen. Uh, Joe Biden had said some things about Mark Zuckerberg on the campaign that uh, suggested that he wasn't a fan. Um, but now that things are a little clearer with the transition and we've seen some appointments, it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting because like more recently we've seen the cultural narrative shift. I think during the Obama years, it was like Silicon Valley is going to change everything and a lot of techno utopianism that I think everybody bought into. But now like on Netflix, you see the social dilemma and even, yeah, it was yesterday, right? That the FTC filed the antitrust lawsuit against Facebook. Um, yeah. So navigating having these, you know, big tech appointments within this cultural context, I think will be interesting. Yeah. And I was looking, so, because that was one of the things during the Obama years, I mean, the Obama um, 2008 and 2012 campaign, like really utilized digital strategy and like used Facebook and everyone's like, this is amazing. And they were, uh, the Obama administration was, had really good relationship with Google. So I looked and for between 2008 and 2016, 55 former in, uh, Google employees took jobs in the Obama administration and 197 former Obama officials went to Google. That's a lot. So yeah, so there's definitely like very tight connections between government and Silicon Valley, even though we sometimes think of them as, as disparate worlds. Um, so I think for today's conversation, we're going to pick a couple of cases to really dive in depth between um, some of Biden's picks and people who will be working in the Biden administration and their links to Silicon Valley to see some of the ways that um, big tech and the Biden administration might play out. So I guess like to start, you know, what are some of the actions that the Biden administration like could take regarding big tech in January? So the Biden administration is going to inherit a couple of big things. So one of those things, which was rumored to going to have happened for a while, um, that we saw that happened yesterday um, night, was that the FTC, along with 48 attorneys generals, so that's 46 states plus DC and Guam, um, filed an antitrust suit against Facebook. Um, and they're basically positioning it um, by saying that they they that the acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp were anti-monopolist behavior. The FTC and the DOJ have actually split up the the big tech um, anti-monopoly suits. So the other thing the Biden administration is going to inherit is the DOJ antitrust suit against Google. So you think that with the Biden administration. Um, 
there'll be more power behind this lawsuit or, you know, is it pretty bipartisan? Biden hasn't appointed his attorney general yet. So it's, it's uh, like unclear what's going to happen, but they have a lot. I mean, big tech is, has been very influential in the campaign, particularly with Kamala Harris, who obviously is the U.S. Senator from California. She, mm-hmm. she was really, she got a lot of her funding from big tech yeah. throughout her career. Like, was her whole ascent shaped by Silicon Valley? Yeah, I mean, she gets a lot of funding, um, like campaign donations from Silicon Valley. Her and Sheryl Sandberg have a really good relationship. I think she was like even on the Lean In tour with Sheryl Sandberg. Um, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> a few years ago when that was really exciting for feminists. And um, uh, her sister's actually, it's, I think, the head of diversity at Uber. And then her brother-in-law is um, Uber's legal officer. And, and awesome. <laughs> um, so there's like a family connection there. And she was also California's attorney general when um, Facebook acquired Instagram and WhatsApp. So there's also been cr- some criticism or just some sense that, you know, she's not going to be very, very tough. Um, did we see, you know, when she was running, did you see her? Was there any indication to how she would treat you know, big tech in Silicon Valley on her platform. I know she didn't have it too, too much. Um, no, she really didn't. I mean, the dem- the person who talked about big tech the most during the campaign was Elizabeth Warren. So Elizabeth Warren ran, it was, you know, a very, like in Silicon Valley too, she had billboards in Silicon Valley that said, break up big tech. Like she was hitting the heart of the beast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people sort of, I, I mean, I certainly did kind of assume that, and one of the kind of ways that Biden would shift to the left to like appease or try to bring progressives in would be his stance on big tech. Um, but I really don't think that that's the case, particularly um, with the the picks that he's had for the administration, which have been very corporate, like beyond just big tech, have really represented a lot of corporate interests. So um, I think Elizabeth Warren is going to have a lot of fun at the Senate confirmation hearing. <laughs> I think that's when the Biden administration will realize that they've they've made an error in not giving her a cabinet position just because I think that she is going to have. Well, I mean, they've they've thrown very few bones to the progressive wing of yeah. the party. Just mm-hmm. yeah. you know, on that note, what do we see in the transition team? It has been very. Um, I mean, I guess I was surprised like how much corporate interests have been represented in the Biden transition, but we can talk about a couple. Um, The one that really stood out to me um, was Tony Blinken, um, Mm -hmm. who is uh, Biden's uh, nominee for Secretary of State. Um, And Tony Blinken, by all accounts, is like a very competent person. Um, he's, he's been a public servant for a while, um, but him and Michelle Florney, who was being floated as um, a pick for the Department of Defense to head the Department mm-hmm. of Defense, um, founded together um, this strategic consultancy called West Exec. So what is a strategic consultancy? <laughs> so Sounds like lobbying. Strategic consultancies are uh, an interesting um, creation. They were actually, the first person to do it was Henry Kissinger. 
Um, so, you know, it's got to have a great legacy. <laughs> um, who, um, he, so he founded Kissinger Associates. And it, uh, it's very, very common across the aisle for, um, you know, because your guy loses the election and all of a sudden you're out of the job, you're out of government, what are you going to do? Um, so Chastigas consultancies basically will be like these former, like they get former important like government officials and they're, they're very like critically, they're not lobbyists. So if you are a lobbyist, you would have to like report that as a conflict of interests. So a lot of, a lot of what these strategic companies do and definitely what West exec was doing is mm -hmm. helping private corporations get government contracts. So they won't lobby on their behalf, but they'll be like, okay, this is who you should talk to. And like, this is what. So it's more through personal connections that they already have. Yeah. And it's just sort of like leveraging their former position. Um, and this is legal. You can yeah. do that. I mean, being a lobbyist is legal. You just have to say that you are. And critically, if you are a strategic consultant, you don't have to disclose who your clients are. Yeah, and again, yeah. yeah, so this is something that's going to come up in the Senate confirmation hearings, and I'm sure Elizabeth Warren's team is on it. So like West exec um, was like Michelle Florney is on the record as saying like we founded West exec to bridge the quote unquote Silicon Valley Pentagon divide, which basically means we help Silicon Valley companies get Department of Defense contracts. Um, but, but, uh, you know, we don't actually have a client list. Um, so we, we, so there's been some reporting, um, particularly at the, um, American prospect. There's a really great article called how Biden's foreign policy team got rich, which we'll link. So we know that there was an Israeli surveillance startup called Windward, um, mm -hmm. who former, uh, CIA director David Petraeus is an investor in. Um, the one actually, David Cohen, who's being floated for CIA director, is also um, one of the original principals of West mm -hmm. Exec, as is Avril Haines, who was just appointed as um, ODNI, the national intelligence um, chief. We know that, so they've said Google isn't a client, but um, Eric Schmidt, who's uh, Google's C former CEO, his philanthropy is a client. Um, and their in-house think tank, uh, Google's in-house think tank Jigsaw mm -hmm. is probably a client, um, although they claim they're not. Um, so, but there's certain, so there's certainly links, I'm sure like more information will come out as we yeah. go through these Senate confirmation hearings, but it's interesting. So Tony Blinken, um, mm -hmm. was, was a founder. He's, he's a secretary of state nominee, but Michelle Florney, who was actually a front runner for the DOD position. Yeah, but did not get picked in part because this bunch of progressives wrote a really long article basically highlighting her ties, not just to West exec, but also Booz Allen Hamilton. I'm sure that's part of the reason that Biden went with- um, Lloyd Austin. Lloyd Austin. But who is on the board of Raytheon, so. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, even then, so, so Lloyd Austin is a retired general, so he's going to need a waiver, which Elizabeth Warren, who is kind of <laughs> really going to be the burr in Biden's side, has said she doesn't, she doesn't support. Um, and yeah, he's also on, on the board of Raytheon, and there's been con some concerns um, about conflicts of interests. Um, so yeah, so that's one way that, like, tech is certainly going to be influenced. Yeah, so... <laughs> 
you know, we talked a lot about how a lot of these people have corporate connections. How do you think this is going to play out in the government's willingness to take on corporate interests? Yeah. So there's a number of ways that like links with strategic consultancies or like links with industry can play out in the administration. And like, notably, I just want to like make a distinction. Like this is not like, so a lot of times when we think about like corporate interests being represented in the government, we think about like, like Rex Tillerson could be an example of somebody who like was in, was in business, like was yeah, in the, yeah. like, oil and then like, you know, and a lot of Trump's like ambassador picks or like picks for other things have, have been businessmen who have no government experience who are then like plopped right. in powerful government positions. Um, this is a little different when a lot of these people are really, really, really competent they've worked in government or in public service their whole Isn't life. Isn't that scarier? <laughs> yes, but it, it, it's a bit different, right? Where they're, they're um, hedging their bets against like when they will next not be in government can sometimes affect mm -hmm. policy positions and like yeah. most critically can affect like who gets government contracts. And that's big money. Like government contracts are very, very important. So like one way this played out, and this is what got brought up with um, the Michelle Florney case. So Michelle mm -hmm. Florney, in addition to her role at West Exec, um, has gone back and forth between consultancies for a lot of her yeah. career. One of the most notable things she did was work at Booz Allen Hamilton, um, who has signed 61 contracts with the Defense Department. Um, and so there was this incident highlighted in this article by these progressives who opposed Florney, where they said um, she, um, during the Obama administration that um, they were having a discussion about um, the uh, arms ban to Saudi Arabia and Florney said, no, don't do it. And a lot of people said, mm -hmm. is this because you have connections with corporate interests who want to sell um, yeah. um, these things? So that's like one way that that can play out. The other way that this can play out is like, who, and who gets government contracts? So Avril yeah. Haynes um, mm -hmm. is Biden's pick um, for, to head national intelligence. Um, she actually, it's very funny. There was good reporting on this. The second her pick was announced, her links to Palantir were scrubbed. So no way. She, yeah. Okay. So like people know. <laughs> she worked for Palantir for, for, for a small amount of time. Like she wasn't there for years and years. Um, but <laughs> like her Wikipedia page, her bio, it was just gone. <laughs> Um, and so there was a good report on that. Um, yeah. that, that another, there was another pick um, to uh, uh, who for one of the departments, I can't remember. It wasn't big tech, but it, similarly his, his links, I think he, oh yeah, the one who was on the board of Facebook, his Wikipedia was also scrubbed as soon as his announcement went up where he had said something like, I love working in the corporate world. And that was taken out. Right <laughs> So, so Haynes worked for Palantir. Um, yeah. A lot of the um, uh, controversy around here hasn't focused on her, her role at Palantir, but it's focused on her role in Obama's drone war, where she was um, really influential in, she, she was kind of the person who he would go to for legal advice. Like they would wake up in the middle of the night and be like, is this legal? And she would like say whether it was or not. Um, and that's the Obama's drone war has been one and these like targeted assassinations have yeah. been one of the most 
um, controversial parts of the Obama presidency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, you know, basically like Palantir's business model is that they contract with government, right? So, I mean, Palantir's most been most notable in the news for its contract with ICE and, mm-hmm. and ICE that is, you know, involved in deportations. Um, but they also contract with the DOD, with the FDA. Um, they, there was actually a really great report out by No Tech for Tyrants on um, Palantir's contracts with UK um, governments. So they have contracts with the NHS. Um, they have contracts with the US Health and Human Services, the SEC, the State Department, the Department of Agriculture, and the World Food Program. I mean, they have... <laughs> They have contracts <laughs> with everybody. <laughs> um, so yeah, so so contracts are really, really important and they're really, really powerful. And if somebody has in a position of power, um, mm-hmm. is there it can affect like who gets those those contracts? Do you know what what other contracts are we talking about? Like that are might happen under a Biden administration or already exist that are kind of terrifying that people don't really know about. So the one, the contract I have, I'm keeping the closest eye on is the Pentagon's cloud computing contract. Now, this has been a crazy story. Mm -hmm. So um, the federal, the US federal government since like Obama, like 2011, basically was convinced like, okay, we need to move to cloud computing, which is basically like, instead of having your own IT on site that you run, uh, it's like computing as a utility. So like mm-hmm. Amazon Web Services is basically the like leader in like yeah. cloud computing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the House Monopoly report like really talked about AWS, Amazon Web Services. I mean, they, I mean, that is a really, really, really lucrative business because you have very little overhead and it's incredible. I mean, you just so much profits and basically Amazon's profits from AWS mm-hmm. subsidizes all of Amazon, everything they do. Really? Um, so it's a really, really, really profitable um, business. Mm-hmm. Um, and a ton of US government agencies use um, AWS, estimated around 6,500 public agencies use Amazon Web Services. Yeah. It's impossible to know the real number because a lot of AWS like contracts out, um, mm-hmm. but NASA and the CIA um, both use, um, Amazon. In 2011, basically the federal government's like, we're going to move to the cloud. So they've had a really big, this is like the cloud first strategy. Then under Trump, it was, um, the cloud smart strategy. Um, Mm -hmm. and the, a big one that happened is the departments of defense contract, which they've called Jedi. That is a reference to Star Wars. In case yeah. you were wondering whether the Department of Defense is <laughs> of Star Wars nerds, they are. It's ruining everything. <laughs> um, so during the Trump administration, um, se- then Secretary of Defense James Mattis mm-hmm. um, had a lot of meetings with Jeff Bezos, who's the head of mm-hmm. Amazon. Um, and he was actually going to be on the Departments of Defense Innovation Board that was set up by Ash Carter, who's department, who is the chief of DOD under Obama, who, of course, as you know, has links to Silicon Valley. He's at Stanford. Um, 
And um, and this Defense Innovation Board also included Eric Schmidt and Reid Hoffman, who's uh, LinkedIn CEO. So like this was basically like we need to get like the smart tech guys who, to like help us upgrade. Um, Bezos actually couldn't get confirmed onto the board because he did not fill out a security clearance form. No way. <laughs> so hilarious. Um, but anyways, but Mattis and Bezos had a lot of conversations about cloud computing, basically like convinced him along with like his other connections in Silicon Valley convinced him like this is a good thing you need to switch to the cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the Jedi contract came out, a lot of other cloud um, providers complained that it seemed to have been written specifically for Amazon. So, so there, were there, was there bidding? But it looked like no yeah, for it. there were there was bidding, but it was like things in the contract were like, you need to have this many data centers, one hundred and twenty five miles apart. And yeah. Amazon's like, we can do that. And everyone's like, <laughs> why? <laughs> How much did they get for that? How much was it? This is a $10 billion contract for 10 years. Wow. Yeah. So it's a lot of money. For how long? It's like for 10 years. For 10 years. And the only reason it's 10 years, I mean, that's the other thing that's like very significant about these cloud computing contracts. It has to be for 10 years because like the law that authorized this, this stipulates Mm -hmm. a time limit. So it's like at minimum two years, maximum 10 years. Um, But it, it is very, very hard to switch cloud computing providers and like a lot of the initial upfront associated costs of of switching to cloud computing is like literally just like switching things over. So it's like unclear once the DOD grants it and this goes forward, whether they they could actually switch providers. Um, So is there anything here that um, they get this exclusive contract for 10 years and they're guaranteed this amount of money and then it's sort of like they're a bit locked in or is it that they have a monopoly on cloud computing um, and it's just the virtue of the monopoly or is there a fear that they could somehow, you know, reach and access data or know something that they shouldn't be knowing? So this is interesting because um, Oracle actually sued, um, they're another cloud provider. They sued basically being like, this isn't fair. But Congress said, we prefer that you break this up into multiple cloud providers. Yeah. For a lot of like really good reasons, like one of which is like um, consolidated systems are just like fragile. And we saw that with like a few days ago, it might be a week at this point, like one of Amazon's like data centers had a problem and like a huge portion of the internet went down. Um, And there's been some like, yeah, very like um, key um, examples where either like it'll be a glitch or at one point, like I think Google's cloud computer, like data server got like hit by lightning or something, you know, like <laughs> things would happen, right? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, in what's it called, Uninhabitable Earth, that David Wells Wells book, he talked about how like a lot of our data infrastructure will be underwater in- Yeah, no, not totally. that. Like, Ironically, Microsoft is now creating cloud computing servers that go underwater. Um, but also okay. too, like, one of the things when you switch to cloud, like cloud computing, so like when there's the actual integrity of the data servers themselves, but the way that you access that data is through the internet. And like our internet infrastructure suddenly becomes like massively critical and it's 
Yeah. It's actually Rishi Shunak, who's an MP in um, the UK, wrote a really, really good report. Like that was basically like our internet infrastructure is terrifyingly um, like one to just like accidents. So like there was a earthquake in Taiwan a few years ago that like took out like six cables, which was just devastating. Another is like malicious attack by either state or non-state actors. So, so mm -hmm. like getting the cables under the sea is actually, I mean, if you could cut, you could cut cables in the sea and actually like fishing trawlers sometimes accidentally do that. So that that might be that might be a little bit more difficult, but like particularly sensitive uh, are when uh, the cables come on land and they have those um, I don't know what they call it like on site. Basically, like when internet cables come to land and they have a center, like those are really really like critical infrastructure and like they're not really we don't have a lot of resources dedicated to like protecting them. Um, yeah. So when you switch to cloud computing, like other security risks come up. Um, and yeah, I mean, and then also the, the, you know, is this question of it's too big to fail, right? Like if, if you are hosting the U S government, like your business yeah. cannot go bankrupt, um, along with, I mean, and this is a really good question about like whether cloud computing providers can access data and what they can access. And that was one of the things that came up in the house monopoly report is that the private corporations that Amazon is, um, that Amazon, like Amazon cloud computing um, hosts complain that Amazon looks at their data. So like often, so there's like three different kind of layers of data that like cloud computing providers can have. One is like the actual data, which like you would think of like as read text, like mm -hmm. my actual document. But then there's other associated data that's like very significant that you could like gather um, sort of like metadata, like you could get information about and sense trends. So like, for instance, it's like, okay, who logs on and when, and what are the first files that they open? Or like, oh, all of a sudden you need way more computing power. I bet that's because one of your products is doing really well. And like, like other companies have complained that like Amazon use this derived data that they get because they're monitoring like their usage and they can see certain things that they have to, I mean, that they generally often have to monitor, like to monitor cyber threats. So like you want to keep that data about like attempted logins. And if something seems suspicious, like somebody's logging in somewhere, you're like, ah, oh, there must be a cyber attack. So there's good reason for them to have that data. But, but they also benefit in other ways. Yeah, but at the same time they use it. Um, so it's not at all clear, like, I'm sure, I mean, it's not at all clear exactly what that looks like in terms of, um, that's, that, that's like a private, like, clearly economic competitive thing, but it's not all clear. But what it gets scarier like. when they have an exclusive contract like this. Because yeah, and Congress, yeah. yeah. Congress has said we prefer multiple, multiple cloud um, providers. And so the interesting thing about this is that, um, Sally Donnelly, who is a Mattis top aide, she's called the fairy godmother of big tech. <laughs> no, oh my gosh. Um, and she was a former strategist for Amazon. Then she went like back. Um, so she in, in 2012 started a consulting firm called SBD Advisors, right. um, who had clients that included Amazon, Uber, and yeah. Palantir. Um, she also specialized in bridging the gap between Silicon Valley and the Pentagon. Ah, oh, so many people do. This is, um, this is a revolving door. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, I think the gap is pretty well bridged at this point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She did it. Um, and then, so, and then she, um, so she was working at Amazon. She had this consulting firm. And then in 2017, she helped Mattis through his Senate confirmation um, process. And then, she, and then she went back to work at him when he became like chief. Um, and um, there was another employee who used to work for Amazon, Deep Ubi. Um, who like tweeted something unfortunate while he worked at DOD because he had he had worked at Amazon before then he was working at DOD he tweeted while working at D once an Amazonian always an Amazonian people were like no <laughs> you work for the defense department now <laughs> so um and he he was really um, influential within the department for like making an argument for like why they should only use one cloud provider. Basically saying yeah. that like the, the Department of Defense's argument was like, look, we don't have like the technical capacity or like skills necessary to like balance competing cloud providers. We don't know what that looks like. It's, it would be hard. Um, it's not a completely ridiculous argument um but but he but there was some um question because he was involved he like made that argument then amazon aws was like hey will you come back and work for us so he recused himself from jedi while that happened and then he went back to aws so there was like some like so with both of them there's just like like people were quite irritated. So Oracle in particular was quite upset about Amazon getting this contract. They tried a counter strategy where they had a <laughs> dinner <laughs> with Trump and Peter Thiel <laughs> to try to, um, I mean, they, they, I mean, they sued. The big thing was that they sued. Um, and um, President Trump uh, notably really doesn't like Amazon in part because Jeff Bezos, who's the owner, of, the CEO of Amazon, owns the Washington Post, who's not been very nice to Trump. So Trump has been very public about his dislike of Amazon. And so, um, uh, you know, they tried to sway, you know, there was some question about whether he was going to be happy about this. Um, and then Mattis, but at this point, Mattis had left as uh, at DOD, Mark Esper um, was uh, defense secretary. Hilariously, he used to be the chief lobbyist for Raytheon. Raytheon really pops up everywhere. It's funny. Yeah, um, that's so strange. Um, he reviewed the pros process. So the yeah. contract at this point has been awarded to Microsoft, but oh. yes, wow. but um, yeah. so it's been awarded to Microsoft, but then Amazon sued. So that's one of the things that the new DOD yeah. chief, chief is going to kind of like decide, like at this point, Microsoft him? has it, but, but that could change um, yeah. in the next administration. So the office of management and budget is mm -hmm. the office that's in charge of like the federal government's cloud computing strategy and the, the Biden's agency review team, mm -hmm. um, has a employee, a former employee of AWS, um, who's a Amazon Web Services like enterprise strategist or something. And in fact, the Office of Management and Budgets like transition team is very, very heavily skewed towards. And they also the OIRA, which is the regulation agency, right? They're housed in OMB as well. Mm -hmm. So, any any better that you know Microsoft has this exclusive contract versus Oracle or Amazon, or is it just the structure of these? 
of cloud computing in this way, like you said, and this contract kind of scary bit? I mean, I think the cloud computing industry is very highly concentrated in just in general. I mean, Amazon certainly is a leader. Um, the EU has also been quite concerned about like how concentrated the market is. They've tried to like come up with like a digital, um, they call it Gaia X, which so they're trying to create like an EU sovereign cloud structure. Um, China obviously is different. China has um, it, its own, um, um, that they, they have different cloud providers, but it's the Alibaba cloud computing um, um, branch. If you if you aren't if you're going to go with one cloud co provider, I don't know if it's better that you go with one monopolist versus another. Um, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, and I don't know enough about like the different practices, like the micro practices, and like probably the service uh, like service agreements that they negotiate, particularly with something like the Department of Defense are classified or like the CIA are classified. Um, so it's hard to know whether one would be better than the other um, if you are going to give it to one person. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, <laughs> either way, still democracy sounds like it loses a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the contracting in general is a really big, I mean, Chiara Cordelli, um, who uh, just came out with a book, it's called The Privatized State, and she's a political philosopher, um, basically like arguing like, like, I'm only halfway through it, but ba her basic argument is like we like the government contracts out basically everything mm -hmm. from prisons to cloud computing to the military. Yeah. And like, what does that mean um, for government? So, so the contracts are very significant. Speaking of uh, democracy and the gutting of public capacity, we haven't talked about Facebook. <laughs> I know. Um, what do you think is going to happen with them and a new Biden administration? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, so the FTC and this the uh, attorneys general case mm -hmm. was so I read them last night. The attorney general's cases is better in part, I think, just because they have more resources. They see the FTC and the states seem to be angling for an unbundling or like forcing Facebook to sell Instagram and WhatsApp. Um, and potentially because one of the things like, so the, the main things that they said was like um, acquiring Instagram and WhatsApp was uh, with the intent of like acquiring a competitor. They have a yeah. lot of emails from Mark Zuckerberg in which he like basically verbatim says that. Um, <laughs> it's quite interesting because Google, so like Google has been terrified of an anti-monopoly suit, like since almost it started in part because it saw what happened with Microsoft and the Microsoft antitrust case basically like was won by using top execs emails against them um, and being read out in court and they were very persuasive and they often undercut what like these, these people were testifying was their yeah. intent. And particularly like the famous quote is by Steve Ballmer, who was like, we are going to choke the air supply of Netflix. And then they basically <laughs> spent the entire court case being like, Steve Ballmer's just really intense. <laughs> he didn't mean it. <laughs> um, so, so Google, any time, like 
has very, for all of its employees, not just the top execs, has yeah. very, very strict rules around like never say crush, never say choke air <laughs> supply. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and they're basically all the words that came up in the Microsoft case. And they CC their like antitrust lawyers and like all these emails so that they can claim a, a, like client attorney privilege. Um, Facebook, I think, is wishing that they did that. Right. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> I'm glad they didn't. Because you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has, and then it's also quite funny because you know their their emails, so like they're not really capitalized or like the spelling isn't great, and it's a lot of like yeah, like anyways. So um, I'm sure that that will really feature. Um, so, so you, so, so that, that may happen. The yeah. other two things that are interesting about the complaint and the attorneys general's complaint is much better about this than the Facebook one is one about, um, Facebook's API. And so basically Facebook's one of Facebook strategies was like, okay, let's like open our API so that like other developers will like build on top of Facebook instead of making their own product. And so like they'll benefit because they already have like the friend, like the social graph, and yeah. then we'll benefit because they won't make competitors. Um, and so one of the complaints is like one of it, Facebook's anti-monopoly practices was like anytime a developer was doing something that could like potentially become a competitor to Facebook, they would like arbitrarily shut off their access to the API. Um, <laughs> Oh. And um, and the other thing that Facebook did was what was really controversial was it bought Onavo, which was a VPN, and it would mm -hmm. use that VPN to like basically see how people like it would look at the data that it was getting from how people were using the VPN to see how they were using other things. So they would spy basically on how other companies were doing it to be yeah. able to like identify what, what I forget the exact term they use they call them like early bird I don't know something like this just like early competitors so that they could either like quash or acquire them um so so I think clearly this the those two things I think they're very clearly FTC's angling to like be like sell WhatsApp and Instagram and it will be interesting to see if like the other monopoly practices um get addressed Going forward with like Biden and the FTC, I mean, Biden has like during the campaign, as I said, made some statements that was basically like, I don't know what Mark Zuckerberg is doing, but this doesn't seem great. Um, but now that he's been elected, I mean, Nick Clegg has said, like his exact quote was like, Biden and I are friends as much as you can have friends in politics. Like it was something weird like that. Yeah. yeah. You were like, I don't know if you are friends, but I think they do have, I think yeah. they do have a good relationship. And Nick Clegg um, was the former deputy um, UK prime minister. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing though is, so there was um, a report um, by Public Citizen that mm -hmm. found a huge problem of like FTC officials who had like corporate interests. So this was really, really interesting. So over 75% of top FTC officials, 31 out of 41, over the past two decades have um, left the agency to serve corporate interests that confronted FTC issues. And over 60% of the official studies have worked on behalf of the technology sector. So that's 31 out of 41. 
Um, so Andrew Smith, who's the head of FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection, <laughs> had listed 120 conflicts of interest <laughs> on a financial disclosure form. Um, and some of the companies listed were Facebook, along with Equ Equifax and Uber. Um, and then um, Sean Royal, um, who was previously the deputy director in the FTC's Bureau of Competition from 2001-2003, um, now works at Facebook. Um, and FTC, like in the past, has been like criticized for like failing to enforce big tech stuff. Mm -hmm. um, they like the the most notable one was like the Cambridge Analytica scandal found that like Facebook was in violation of like an FTC um, order about like how users data was used and not given to third parties. They were famously like given this like massive fine that like did nothing to Facebook's bottom line. Um, it was like, they were like, this is the biggest FTC fine in history. And Facebook was like, this is a hiccup. Um, um, it, FTC also failed yeah. to, to enforce the consent order against Google. Um, it, Uber was twice found in violation of consent order. FTC imposed no fines, uh, failed to block they also failed to block mergers. So like, no, like, right, obviously the Facebook, um, WhatsApp and Instagram acquisition, the FTC didn't approve, but they just declined yeah. to do anything about. Um, and also like Google's acquisition of DoubleClick, which was also highlighted in the House Monopoly report as something that could be unbundled. Um, and then we have a ton of Facebook people on Joe Biden's team. So um, Jeff Zients, who actually was formerly um, head of the Office of Management and Budget, um, is a former Facebook board member. He's currently co-chairing Biden's transition team. Yeah. Uh, Transitions General Counsel Jessica Hertz was recently a director at Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, she actually helped them navigate the FTC Cambridge Analytica uh, issue. Uh, former Facebook lobbyist Louisa Terrell is heading up Transitions Congressional Relations. Uh, Austin Lynn was a program manager at Facebook. Um, Erskine Bowles spent eight years on Facebook board. He's also been advising the transition team. So there's a lot of there's a lot of Facebook folks on the transition team. Um, and like we've heard this story before, with the SEC is just a revolving door between big banks and financial institutions. So yeah, it really is everywhere. Are there any other tech companies we should talk about here in the context of the Biden administration? Yeah, I guess the one other, the one other person that comes to mind, I guess, is the big company that comes to mind is Uber. Um, mm -hmm. So we heard a lot about Uber in the California referendum. Um, just, so California passed a law, basically that was like Uber along with another, a lot of other like tech companies claims yeah. that like their employees are not employees, they are contractors and therefore they are not required to give them any benefits. So California essentially passed a law that was like, no, you need to treat them as employees. Um, and Uber spent, I mean, just unprecedented. It, was, like million, right? it yeah. was an absurd amount of money. Yeah, to to put on um, 
the referendum uh, to put a, a California ballot initiative that basically like the the law still exists, but it was just like a a a, a, a clarification that would clarify that like Uber's yeah. riders are contractors, not employees. Yeah. Um, and I mean, they had like a, such an aggressive advertising campaign. They uh, paid people from like the NAACP to go on TV and talk about it. It was, um, yeah, I listened to a podcast sure. about it. It was like unprecedented yeah. amounts of money. Actually, it's so funny. One of my best friends lives in California right now. And she said <laughs> she saw so many ads for it that she just assumed it was evil. Like, Yeah, like, there you go. <laughs> I mean, they had the thing when you were accepting a ride, you had to, you had to say, yes to a page that said vote yes on prop 22 or even for doordash when you were getting your food it was yeah it would happen to receipts yeah they really spent a lot of money on it to just i mean to just basically like circumvent labor laws yes um yeah. and especially for people not in the uk so no health care yeah i mean during a pandemic so it was very upsetting i mean it was really really disappointing um and one of the guys who comes up is Jake Sullivan. Yeah. So Jake Sullivan, and again, this is like one of the sad things. Jake Sullivan like kind of made his name with um, Hillary Clinton. He's most commonly associated with her. He was um, the youngest ever, I don't know if the youngest ever, I think it was youngest director of policy planning in the State Department. He served as Clinton's deputy chief of staff um, he served as by, then Vice President Joe, Joe Biden's um, National Security Advisor. And like for all intents and purposes, like really great, smart, bright, competent, talented guy. Um, kind of the scary part, I think, is when, you know. Yeah, yeah. He's not, he's not your Rex Tillerson. I mean, no. like really has spent his time in public service. Um, and uh he joined in January 2017, this macro advisory partners. Um, again, they don't disclose a client list. So like, we don't know who he worked for, um, but he definitely, it like was confirmed that one of the, the people, one of the companies he represented was Uber. Um, and he represented them like on the other side of the table from the labor union. So this was like after the California bill, um, was passed to protect gig workers yeah. uh, and they were negotiating because Uber basically threatened to put a ballot initiative on and fund it. But before then they had negotiations and Jake Sullivan was representing Uber. Um, so, so again, it's like this, yeah, yeah example of, of corporate interests. And, and he is now um, Joe Biden's nominee to be um, the NSA. So he, he's, you know, he'll be back in a very significant position. And it's interesting too, because Uber, um, Uber has a lot of money um, from Saudi Arabia. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah. It is, I mean, like a lot. And um, there was an article a few years back, I'll also link it about like how much Saudi money is invested in Silicon Valley um, mm -hmm. companies. Um, like Uber being being one of them. I was just reading, and well, well, I'll drop it in um, today. But Corey Doctorow has a good uh, like little blog post about like Uber would not be possible without Saudi Arabian cash. Um, yeah, it's Saudi Arabia invested 
$10 billion into Uber through SoftBank. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Is it all through SoftBank? Yeah, it is all through SoftBank. And SoftBank, <laughs> interestingly, is was basically what was funding WeWork, which like yeah, exactly. very publicly crashed and burned. Um, so there's been some really interesting stuff about VCs and SoftBank in Silicon Valley recently. So, I mean, that was a lot. And it sounds <laughs> mostly like we're going to have to do a lot of fighting ahead. But I was wondering what you thought the general state of big tech would be in four years. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it really depends on how kind of the 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 fight goes. I mean, to badly quote Elizabeth Warren, um, it seems like the Biden administration is going to be very, very friendly to corporate interests in general and to big tech in particular, they seem to have like a lot of links. So I don't see like the Biden administration on their own, um, like really doing anything like significant. Um, like maybe we'll get an unbundling of WhatsApp and Instagram for instance. Um, yeah. But I don't see anything major. I also don't see it likely that anything major happens with Congress just because like, again, even though there is like an anti-tech sentiment on both sides of the aisle, it doesn't, it doesn't seem clear to me like where that, where they could come together, even on something like, may, like maybe section 230, which would like remove a limited liability, but like yeah. not sure even then. Um, like maybe potentially if it was framed as like movement against like China's tech dominance or something, potentially. Yeah. Um, but even but even then, I, I'm I'm just not sure. On the other hand, like the example of Michelle Florney, like I mean, she was going to be the head of the Department of Defense, and then like the progressives really organized and and um, you know made made their objections known, and and she wasn't picked. Um, so I think the Senate confirmation hearings will be a very very interesting kind of next stop to see what happens and what plays out, and particularly, I mean beyond just like big tech, there's a lot of corporate interests that are like entangled in the Biden picks. And so it'll be very interesting to see like how, especially after like what happens with the Senate control and the Georgia elections, it'll be interesting to see like what the progressives in the Senate, how they position themselves um, in terms of like how they're thinking about trying to get Biden's picks confirmed. Mm -hmm. um, and that will probably reveal a lot about their strategy in terms of like the next four years and like how they're going to organize around these issues. Um, but nothing's going to happen without a fight. Fair enough. And last question, if Alina was Biden for a day, <laughs> oh God. Um, if, if you had Biden's powers for a day or two or, you know, what's the one thing you would want to see and would make happen? That's such a good question. I mean, I want to say cloud computing because I'm just so worried about it. I think that's like a long-term infrastructural thing, but I would like very drastically reduce the number of contracts or things that the federal government was privatizing and contracting. Right. Yeah, that's the case. Um, the more they contract out, the more they're dependent, and the less. Yeah, the more the, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Not yeah. just in tech, but like in every capacity of the government. Yeah. So I think that's sort of like the big, 
like that's kind of like the overarching big thing that's happening is that like contracting like government contracting in general creates kind of skewed incentives and and creates these dynamics and that's not to say that like i mean there it is true that like like you know we do need the DOD has a good point that they need like new tech and they need to like keep up with tech and Silicon Valley often has the talents, but sometimes it's better to hire in-house um, and, you know, to invest in your own infrastructure rather yeah. than contracting out. You've been listening to the Anti-Dystopians. All of the articles or books that Anjali and I mentioned in this conversation will be available in the show's show notes. We also send out a newsletter to accompany each episode of The Anti-Dystopians, and you can sign up using the links below. To avoid descending into dystopia, be sure to subscribe to The Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.